He's the author um, of about 28 books. That's the quote from him. About 28 books. His newest book is entitled Heroic Children, Untold Stories of the Unconquerable. Rabbi Hanoch Teller, master author, educator, storyteller, is in our studio on this Thursday morning at JM in the AM. Rabbi Hanoch Teller, welcome back to JM in the AM. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. It is a pleasure to have you here, and uh, I'm always I'm always amazed when I tell my listeners about the number of books you've written. I think back in 1991, I made a commitment to finish my first book <laughs> in honor of my 10th anniversary on the air, which would have been 1993. So I said, oh, perfect. We got a deadline, you know. <laughs> Think, well, we're still waiting. <laughs> we're still waiting for that one. I'm not nearly up to 28. In fact, I'm just waiting for the first. Well, this, it, would, this would be a good one to start with. Would, would it be a good one? <laughs> Is the first as more difficult than the other 27? Is the first book that you written that you wrote, rather, was that a more difficult project than all the others subsequently? Factually, no. Uh, this book was 14 years in the works. The one that we have now. Right, Heroic Children. And none took as long as this one. No, this is a very serious book with a lot of research. All your books contain a lot of research, right? But none to this level. None to this level. Unbelievable. Has this been released yet? Is this available uh, to the public? I believe it already. The boat docked uh, last week, so it should be out. All right. So everybody out there can uh, obtain it. Heroic Children, Untold Stories of the Unconquerable. This is, and uh, based on the quotes that have been uh, uh, getting around from people like uh, Michael Medved, serious radio personality, or by Yisrael Mayer Lau, a survivor himself as a child, and, of course, a former chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. That name certainly means a lot in the Jewish world and the world in general around the globe. And Sir Martin Gilbert as well, which is also a pretty prominent name. All of these uh, individuals have uh, heaped praise on you for this uh, for this book. Um, I hate to ask the question this way, but how is this Tales of the Holocaust book different from other Tales of the Holocaust book? Okay. Uh, the fact of the matter is there's no dearth of Holocaust literature. However, what happened was when the war was over, people who survived were obviously very interested in relating their stories and how they had suffered. At the time, the children could not tell their story, and they haven't really since. So this is the one frontier that's yet to have been told. The children survivors, and there weren't all that many of them, are now, of course, in the grips of very old age. Right. But they're still alive. And it was important to document their stories. Uh, and let me ask you a question. Hmm. What is the most, and you're in the hot seat, hmm. what's the most famous story of the Holocaust? The most famous? Oh, gosh. And it's an easy, it's not a hard question. It's not? It's not a hard question. Now I, now I really feel terrible. <laughs> I ruined your whole, I, I ruined the whole momentum here this morning. Uh, I mean, I don't know what you mean by the most famous. The most the answer is, make it easy. Anne Frank? Correct. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that is correct. So Anne Frank is the most internationally renowned story of the Holocaust. However... Anne's story is not a reflective story. She wasn't in the ghettos, wasn't in the camps. Right, she was hidden in an attic. Right, she had a roof over her head with right. her family, a modicum of food. Right. And yet, and yet, because it's a story, it's the most famous. So what we've tried to do with this book is, re- I don't want to say replace, but make a book which is reflective of the Holocaust that youngsters can read, families can read, become part of school curricula about the Holocaust. Rabbi Lau, for instance, spent time as a young child in a concentration camp. Correct. Right. And, this, and that was replicated by... Many, I don't know what the figure would be, but in the millions, right? In the millions of children, I would guess, that spend some time in a country. No, as a rule, children did not survive. As a rule, they did not. So it was a a relatively small number. Children were wrenched from their family. They couldn't manage on their own. Uh, They were subject to disease and squalor, or they were just liquidated immediately because they served no purpose for the Nazis. Right. 
It was uh, a greater miracle of all the miracles of the children who survived. All right. What made you start this project 14 years ago? What What made you? What 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 came mm-hmm. to you, or what What did you say to yourself that made you embark on this? Well, I've been following Holocaust education a long time. I'm a dos- a senior docent in Yad Vashem, but uh, 14 years ago, Rabbi Marvin Heyer from the Wiesenthal Center asked me to write the book, and actually, the Wiesenthal Center had initially commissioned it, and then they just realized they were just their, their heart is in movies, and they, they pulled right. out with the best blood in the world. But uh, that started it. He was the catalytic enzyme, and then 14 years later, here it is. How different is your tour of Yad Vashem than other tour guides that are walking through that building? Uh, the answer is, which is really much reflected in the book, is uh, the way I do it. I'm somewhat baffled by other tour guides who relate num- mind-numbing information Statistics and Statistics. episodes. I mean, we're talking about an infinite crime. What I do all the time is relate personal stories. Wherever I go, wherever I be in a museum, I relate a personal story which can lock it in onto one, pers- one thing which is easier to remember and much better to relate to. It also personalizes the story. And in this juncture, I can tell you a very remarkable story. If you're looking at the cover of the book, sure. uh, it's, you know what happened was working 14 years, you'd imagine that I... Uh, would think about making a cover for the book. <laughs> <laughs> At some point. <laughs> no, but somehow. And the cover is a very important aspect. Oh, whoever, yeah. You, you know why they say don't judge a book by its cover, because everybody does. <laughs> or, or better yet, I always say whoever says don't judge a book by its cover never tried to sell one. <laughs> very good. So we were late in putting together cover, and uh, so put my modest little team on looking for a picture, and uh, even with all my connections in Yad Vashem, we were not so successful till. We found this this picture, which is really quite appropriate. However, the copyright holder is United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. In For Washington. this photo. Right. So I wrote them a letter requesting permission. Right. And they said, no problem. You'll have it in three weeks. Three weeks. I needed it in three days. Right. And, you know, life is such a roller coaster. I was so high. found the picture. And now, so then I thought, you know, to turn a picture from low res to high res does not require three weeks. It's about 10 seconds. Right. But this is a bureaucracy. Hundreds of people work in the Holocaust Memorial Museum. Approvals from this one and that one. Right. So I, I thought, who do I have a protexia? Pardon me for being an Israeli. <laughs> who is my connection? And then I have, there's a fellow in Baltimore, a very well-known individual. They say in his cell phone he has everyone's, every senator and congressman's yeah, personal number. Made, yeah. So, and his son, Aryeh Friedman, learns in Yeshiva right next to my house. Right. So I said, Aryeh, does your father have a connection to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum? He said, no. And then he said, but my mother is a member of the board. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I was going to wring his neck. <laughs> so I sent an email to Judge Chaya Friedman. And I said, I need your help. i got to get this picture. He said, I'll try and help you. And one day later, I had the picture. Now, when you request the picture, you have to fill out a form. You're not going to alter it. A picture has eight children. You're going to put in six children. That's a violation. I wrote, I'm going to make this change, this change, that change, this change, that change, this change, that change. And a day later, I got the picture. And then I had this idea, because what I'm always trying to do with my Holocaust teaching is personalize the individual. Right. So on the cover, it's sepia, and there's one boy which is colored right. to highlight. And I thought this requires a little more permission because I didn't request this. So I emailed back to Judge Friedman. I said, Chaya, I need permission for this. He said, I'm very sorry. I'm busy in a murder trial. I don't really have time for this. I said, got to help me out. So she said, I'll do what I can. And I got back, uh, and I was going to press that night. I had... You know, the plates were burned. Permission to colorize one of the children's right. photos. I didn't have yet permission. Right. And uh, I was hoping that she was going to, yeah, I figured mm-hmm. she could pull it off. Anyways, I have the printing cue it that night. 
three hours, T-minus three hours, the plates are burned, they're on the drums, they're ready to press the button, and <laughs> I get an email from the Holocaust Memorial Museum saying, Dear Rabbi Teller, I'm very sorry, you may not use the picture. If you want to use it the way it is, okay. But, any but otherwise, we spoke to our legal department. The person who I colorized is very sensitive, and he spoke out about it, and you cannot use the picture. Wow. Three hours to go. I'm fashrekt like nobody's business. I don't know what to do, but I'm a fighter. So I wrote her back an email, and I said, tell me, give me his phone number, let me call him. I said, I'm very sorry, but we don't know where he is. And I think, well, but you, you just told me that, that he's he spoke out. I've spoken about it, right? So, I, so she sends me an online clipping, which appeared on the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, and that picture is from the liberation of Auschwitz. This year, four people from the picture went back to Auschwitz. These are obviously very elderly people, right. pointing to themselves in that picture. And it was apparent from this picture, right, in Yeshivish, it was Mashmer from the picture, that his last name is Hirsch, and says he's from Europe. So I had two hours and 40 minutes to find this fellow, <laughs> maybe Hirsch, from Europe. So I said like this, Sherlock Teller, I figured like this, England, that's not Europe, they wouldn't say that, Russia, that doesn't count, oh. not Israel. Right. I'm left with 16 countries. Yeah. <laughs> good luck. So then I'm looking at the picture. I think a guy who's in such good shape, he's obviously not from Poland. Correct. He must be from Hungary because they invaded Hungary. Very in late. March right. 1944. Right. Wow, that's a good deduction on your part. So I figured like this Hungarian is never going to move to France. Right. So now basically I'm down to Belgium, Belgium and Switzerland. Mm -hmm. I figured Holland also is not good for Hungarian. So I have a very clever friend who lives in Switzerland, Moshe Luzer. I called Moshe Luzer, Moshe Luzer, and he works for IBM. I said, Moshe Luzer, I need a fellow uh, Auschwitz survivor. He's probably close to 90. His last name may be Hirsch. He said, Chanoich. He said, this, no, there's no way. If he's a from person, I would know him. There's no such person in there. Right. I don't know if he's religious. Right. I said, you know what? He's probably from Hungary. So that means his first name is either Tibor or Gavor. <laughs> That's yeah. the Hungarian equivalent of Mike and Steve. Right. So he, I'm hearing typing on the computer. He said, Gavor Hirsch, 86-year-old engineer. Here's his phone number. I called him up. You're not, this cannot, it can't, this can't be true. This cannot be it's true. It's harder for me to parallel park than it was for me to find this fellow. <laughs> and there was 34 minutes left. I send an email to the Holocaust Memorial Museum. I say, dear Mrs. Cohen, I've spoken to this person. He gives me permission. If you have any problems, here's his phone number. And I have actually, I could show you a picture of him holding the book in Zurich. Anyways, that's my story. Unbelievable. I took that as an omen for the book. This is why people find stories so hard to believe, because they are unbelievable. Yeah. And these things happen to you. But as you say, you're a fighter, and you made sure to set into motion what was necessary to get this done. Unbelievable. J.M. and the Amr, Rechanoch Teller is here. The brand new book is Heroic Children, Untold Stories of the Unconquerable. It's, again, you know, crazy question, but did you hear stories and accounts from those whom you researched that were so different than the stories you had heard from World War II before then? Okay, so this book, there are nine stories. Uh, the story begins wherever the person was when the war broke out, where the other child was, and it ends... So it's like nine biographies, really? In a way, but it's right. only for the war, wartime. War biographies. And it ends upon their liberation. Right. There's an epilogue where they are today, and you know they're able to wipe the dust off the shoulders, right. the ashes off the shoulders. Uh, I know quite a bit about Holocaust and stories and children, that, that's my specialty, my specialization. But these stories are pretty seriously researched. It's possible to read this book, and you will know everything about the Holocaust, which is why Michael Medved right. said what he said. Which they don't know. Hmm. Michael Medved writes, If you were to read just one book about the Holocaust, the riveting, intimate, and unforgettable narrative should be the one. And he's referring to yours, of course. 
Thank you. Uh, thank you, Michael. Uh, so, Desi's stories are riveting. So, not everyone wants to read about the Holocaust. These mm-hmm. are gripping stories, and they're very uplifting stories. And you finish, you're much more knowledgeable about the Holocaust. Now, and uplifting, I mean, to overstate the obvious, because all nine survived, and there's always a mm-hmm. a tale of hope at the end, because they've been liberated. And that's right. the... And that's the, uh, and that's the great miracle, of course, also, people were able to survive and then build... All right. Fabulous families. Have we heard, and I just was handed the book this morning, folks, so don't blame my lack of research. Do we uh, know, does the general public know any of these nine figures? Uh, some of them are quasi-prominent. Some are not at all. Uh, when I selected, it was hard because I had nine people. I wanted from different parts of Europe, different socioeconomic backgrounds, some religious, some not yet religious. I wanted to get the right mix because I want this to be a book that everyone will be able to pick up. Right. It's a crossover. It's for a general audience. Right. And uh, the fact is, is that afterward, there were many people who survived the Holocaust who made deliberate efforts to forget what occurred. Yeah, of course. And when they had phenomenal stories. But when I spoke to them, I saw that their facts were not accurate. Mm. Not deliberate. They just... Of course. They don't they, recall it the they way. They don't recall it. And they yeah. deliberately changed it. So I had to make sure that this was going to stand up to any scrutiny. And it's very well researched. And scholars read it over. So uh, these nine stories, I know they're accurate. And they portray the story precisely as it occurred. Not sure why this is important, but I'm curious. Of the nine, where do they live? Are there any in the United States now? In Israel? Where the, are majority, the majority of them are in the United the States. The U.S. Interesting. Uh, one is from Switzerland. One is from Mexico City. One is from South Africa. Uh, but the majority from the United States. Interesting. That uh, and anything, anything we learned from that that the majority <laughs> of this group came to America afterwards. Well, the, after the war was over, Israel was the greatest host for Holocaust survivors, right. followed by the United States. Right. The United States was not immediate after right. the war. America, just like during the war, they did not let them in. They did not after the war as well. It's about three years after the war was over that finally they let Nazis in, they let Ukrainians in, right. but Jews they did not let in. So sort of those who, uh, I don't know, who lingered in Europe, they had the greater chance to get to the United States because they were there for a couple of years? Uh, it all meant getting a visa. So there's right. different ways. People went to South America, to Central America, to Cuba. Right. And they, one, of my fellow, one of my children was in Cuba. And, and then he got the visas to come to America years later. Right. Um, all nine, I assume, well, maybe I shouldn't assume, uh, left, uh, left the war with no family, or I should not assume that? Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, children, that's not true. Some did, some didn't. Some actually had family members that survived oh, with them. One, one of the more prominent people in the book is a fellow named Sal Teichman mm-hmm. from Los Angeles. Uh, oh, yeah, we know Sal Teichman, yeah. So his brother, Steve, he carried him on his back for a 50-mile death march. So his brother, I mean, Sal was a small And they both survived, man. of course. They both survived. But uh, of his family, uh, that was a very large family. A handful survived. Wow. Now one of the most prominent families in the West Coast. Correct. Uh, Rabbi Hanoch Teller is here. The book is called Heroic Children, Untold Stories of the Unconquerable. How many tour guides are there in Yad Vashem? I don't even know. It's in the hundreds? I would imagine. And is your tour very different for Jews than for non-Jews? Or not really? Not that different. I mean, the non-Jews really like. I mean, there's a... They They have more of a... The evangelicals love when I give them a tour. I mean, they queue up for a... Right. Tour. I'm a volunteer, so right. they can't assign me. I have to agree to. Understood. But in general, do the I don't know the the average tourist to Israel, maybe even those who are not that religiously connected, referring of course to non-Jews in this case, do they? How would you describe it? Appreciate? Uh, do they? You know, do they gain a lot from the experience? I mean, what what happens when a group that really is completely disconnected from that piece of history, unlike us? 
What is it like for them when they go through that museum? Oh, that's interesting because Yad Vashem, the way it was created, the curators, and they put together a museum, it was made to be guided. So uh, you can go to other museums and do it on your own. Yad Vashem, you can go to Yad Vashem also on your own, but it was made to be guided. So if they have a tour tour guide, a good tour guide, they'll come back and pack it, it'll make a difference. If it's not one, if it's boring, who's heavily accented one, they'll get very little out of the museum. Right. Um, So you write about these... Uh, nine. Who was the first one that you that you met, or you know, that you decided to write about fourteen years ago? It might have been Saul Teichman. That not was sure. the one. I'm not sure if he was the first one, but uh, I don't remember who was the and first. And do one. you, like some of us, leave these sessions completely feeling guilty or inadequate? I mean, after all, you and I both did not carry someone 50 miles, you know, through a death march to save their life. Do you, and we know what Jewish guilt can do and how prevalent it is, even in this generation, do do you feel sometimes inadequate after meeting people like this and hearing these stories and questioning your, and questioning your own life and the things you are, and I may complain about? I'm not sure if the word is inadequate, but I do feel more matured. In other words, Reading a book like this will make you much more sensitive. Well, let me put it this way. It will change you insofar as that you'll become less petty, bellyache less. You will not be uh, so bent out of shape over minor So if I read this book, I won't be as concerned that there's no raisin bran in the house, you're saying? Correct. You'll feel And it really works. Yes. It's a certain mentality that makes you less less engaged with self-pity. Right. At any age, I mean, even at twenty, you could someone could read this and and absolutely and incorporate that. Correct. So inadequate's the wrong word. The right word would be. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing. This is not my insight. It's Rabbi Beryl Wine. Yeah. In Yad Vashem, there's the Children's Memorial. Right. And if you've ever been there, and I'm sure many of your listeners have sure. been there, it's a room as black as black can be. Right. And you see the reflection of candles. Mm-hmm. It looks like a million to right. commemorate the one half million children who perished under the age of 12. Uh, actually, if you're interested, it's five candles, but very cleverly. That's it. It's a total of five with all the reflections. All the reflections. So brilliantly done. And you'll hear the name in tape in Yiddish, Hebrew, and English, and the names of children who perished. Right. And if you are of Ashkenazic ancestry, the only reason that we are here today is thanks to a miracle: our grandparents, our great grandparents. Correct. And no one thinks those who survived that they were more righteous or pious than those children who perished. Correct. So that gives a sense to a person. If we survived, it must be for a person. So Rabbi Berlin mentioned that the one name you don't hear is your own name. Mm-hmm. And I think about this often. Moshe Rabbeinu had many beautiful names. Avigdor, Tuvia, Yedidia. And yet and yet, he always wanted to be known as Moshe. He always had before his eyes that image he was drawn forth from the water. He could have been alligator fodder at the bottom of the river, but he was saved. And that, that's an image that's empowering. If you're saved, it has to be for, for a purpose. For your family, for your people. And even us, and I remind you that my mother left right after Kristallnacht from Germany, so even us who are in the next generation have to somewhat um, refer- think of ourselves as survivors. Correct. Right. We a mir- on our shoulders. Right. Only here because of a miracle. Right. No wonder I'm so infused with Jewish <laughs> guilt. <laughs> because, <laughs> because, you know, you, you think back to what my previous generation went through and... You know, whether it was Germany or Palestine, and those were the two central points of, of our family going back one generation. It was just, you know, t- today, in our lives today, nothing compared to what was going on then. I milk, mean, milk toast. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I say, you know, raisin bread might be the biggest problem. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. You don't have the latest iPhone. and Right, exactly. It's absolute just, torture. Exactly. It's, you know, and I... 
I'm sorry for harping on it through this conversation, mm-hmm. but it's so it's it's such an important it, it's such a prevalent um, thought and feeling that I'm sure so many people have. And by the way, those who are further removed, there could be sixth generation American Jews who nonetheless feel this type of of attitude because of you know what's gone on. Uh, in recent history and and the fact that they've met plenty of people who are either survivors or are children of survivors etc so it's not just if you're completely you know right. well grounded in your connection to that generation Rabbi Hanoch Teller is here he is a, a master storyteller an author an educator he is going to be making some appearances in the New York New Jersey area um, this coming Tuesday in Teaneck? Is that the one? Correct. This uh, coming Tuesday. In you can actually go before that. In Shavasa Batamos, there'll be two talks. All right. Oh, Shavasa Batamos, we have Highland Park, New Jersey. Correct. That's at 7 o'clock. Congregation Ohav MF. They say they uh, refer to it as OE down in Highland Park, and that's going to be happening starting at 7 p.m. Also, after Mincha in Rabbi Rudinsky Shul, I'm assuming that's Muncie. Correct. In Muncie, this coming Sunday in Shavasa Batamos, right after Mincha, which begins at 145 uh, Rabbi Teller will be there as well. So again, Sunday, Rabbi Rudinsky Shul up in Muncie. That starts right after Mincha, which begins at 1.45. And then the Highland Park Congregation, Ohav Emeth. And that is 7 p.m. on Sunday night toward the end of the fast. On Monday, July the 13th, out in Holliswood. Uh, Tuesday, July the 14th, uh, with Dr. Krupka in Farakaway. Very good. At 7.45. And now moving a little bit uh, uh, in advance. Uh, well, I don't closer. Know. Yeah, closer. Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday in Teaneck, New Jersey at the Fox Family on Churchill Avenue in Teaneck, New Jersey. That begins at 7.30. I'm assuming that's this coming Tuesday night. Correct. And then on Wednesday, July the 8th at the Daskal Family in Woodmere, New York, beginning at 8.30 p.m., and that's on Longacre Avenue in Woodmere. So Rabbi uh, Teller has a full schedule. This is all on the website, right? Uh, I don't know if I have specific addresses on my website. All right. but You can rectify that. Okay. <laughs> uh, so we recommend you go to the website. Uh, you just search the name Rabbi Hanoch Teller and you will get there and uh, enjoy his appearance. Those will be appearances where you'll speak, where you'll... These are book launches, so I'll be speaking on the topic of the Holocaust and the books will be available. All right, and everyone will have an opportunity to purchase it there and to uh, uh, meet Rabbi Hanoch Teller. How is your... Uh, or I shouldn't say how is, because I'm assuming it's either come to a close or very close to coming to a close. How has the school year been in Israel for you? Still teaching mm-hmm. at 13, 14 seminaries? It's actually I've really truncated. We're down to... Uh about a handful. Uh, school year is over. <laughs> handful for you might be 12 or 13. <laughs> was it a batter year or not? It was a great year. It was a great year. How different is it? Because you've now been doing this uh, quite a while. Um, and we always wonder you know, about our own kids. And I've got a bunch of teenagers at home. How different is it this generation compared to those you taught 20 years ago? Uh, there's a lot more ADD, that's for sure. There yeah. is. And uh, there's more challenges, uh, distractions. And we, we grew up with this. I mean, that's really what teachers' meetings are all about now in seminaries, how to deal with the distractions. Technology? Correct. That's the main one. Uh, yeah. So if not for that whole technological advancement, kids today would be just like we were. No, I have a feeling that, uh, you know, people, you're worried about a girl who's going to be texting during class. Right. But when we were kids, we wrote notes. Right. We passed them. That's just the, the new we way. Fa- we found methods of communication. <laughs> I mean, you know. So today they're communicating with people thousands of miles away. No, but it's very, I think it's sobering for a teacher to realize you get so furious and you see someone moving on their, on their phone. Right. We did the same thing. With, 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 we passed notes. Correct. And if we had to pass the boredom with uh, mm. some other method, mm. you went ahead and did that, you know. So 
Uh, now I guess it's just easier with all those smartphones. The book is called Heroic Children, Untold Stories of the Unconquerable. Rabbi Hanoch Teller, this is available, has uh, been met with critical acclaim. It must be amazing for you. Look, we know that you know Rabbi Lau takes these works very seriously, and he has been an incredible storyteller himself about the Holocaust, and I'm sure you read his book, which is simply remarkable. Uh, but when people like Sir Martin Gilbert, you know, great historians like that, and Rabbi Sachs, who's, uh, you know, well-recognized throughout every uh, um, a- academic world uh, these days, uh, you know, every avenue of the academic world, it must be amazing when they give these types of approbations to your work. Uh, needless to say, I was very tickled. I don't know if you're aware of Mar- Sir Martin Gilbert is no longer living. He passed ah, right. away this year. Right. But he was crazy about the book. He loved it, and I'm very saddened that I can't present it to him. Mm. And ha- did you meet him? Did you? Uh, uh, we met, yes. Uh, he was hands down the greatest historian regarding the Holocaust, arguably, and the, of this century. He wrote 80 books. Right. Evelyn scholarly works that are ex- eminently readable. And any question, uh, many questions I asked him, and he's a, a, an outstanding scholar. I asked him questions about the Holocaust, and he said to me, again, I can't mimic the British accent, he <laughs> said, but I've pondered this all my life. And with tremendous humility, he didn't know many of the questions, the answers to questions that I have. Most, many questions he did. And it was a historical fact, he knew the answer. He knew you were working on this, obviously. No, he read the book. He right. read the book. He read the manuscript, I guess we'd call Correct. it, right? Um, so, so he knew that you were completely, you know, this was enveloping your professional life at that time. Uh, did he acknowledge, as you said earlier in the conversation, that this type of book really didn't exist with all the work he had done and everything that he had researched, that this type of perspective from children who had reached this age was never published? Uh, he was aware of that. And again, I, I must give credit to Rabbi Heyer, who was right. the one who pointed out that this is something that needs to be done. It's a new, that is the new frontier. Because, like we said initially, there is no dearth of literature, but this is something which is unique. And certainly to tell the story in the children's voices. Uh, Sir Martin Gilbert wrote a book called The Boys, mm-hmm. about boys who came to England on the kinder transport right. and how their lives were, were changed. But these ones, they're starting their new life all over in England. Right. Uh, of these nine, you said there's a, the nine meaning, uh, for those who just tuned in, the nine uh, personalities that you featured in this book. You indicated earlier that some are w- what we would consider you know, religious or observant or orthodox Jews at this point, some not yet at, the, at that point, etc., etc. Is there a way, and I've been so curious about this um, uh, for a variety of reasons, is there, is there a way to... to draw some type of uh, c- conclusion as to what the attitude of religious Jews in the camps were toward their non-observant colleagues and what the attitude of non-observant Jews were to those who were trying to hold on to their religion. Do these nine give any indication of what that relationship was like? In one story there, the tension is very, very prominent. Uh, tension. The tension was very prominent between a father who remained very steadfastly religious. He didn't eat non-kosher food the entire war. And Which is very own. hard to believe. Right. The entire time they were on their own. Wow. And one son had really had it with religion. And so that tension is very prominent. Otherwise, it's not so much given expression. Uh, not, every, again, like, not every story is about a religious person in the book. Uh, not then, not now. Uh, well, there's great confusion. People believe that after the war, so many people lost religion. The fact of the matter is it's really divided down the middle. There are many people who lost religion and many people who gained religion, and it's 50-50. That, that experience of World War II brought them closer to God. Correct. Ritually closer to God. That's right. You're silent. Well, somewhat hard to believe. And, you know, like you just indicated, you know, anybody who's been paying attention for the last few decades has certainly been, you know, convinced mm-hmm. otherwise. 
that that group was a very small group. Uh, no, it's, star- it's a historical fact. It was 50-50. And the fact of the matter is people, uh, this is a philosophical thing, really not my domain of pa- up right. um, above my pay grade, <laughs> but uh, people like to dump on the Holocaust. I cannot believe in a God who allows 6 million right. Jews to Convenient be- excuse, right. But that whole statement is so odious, and I find it repulsive. I can't believe that would allow 6 million Jews. And if it would be 4 million... Or two million. It's such a number game. And if it should, wouldn't be Jews, right. what about two million Cambodians? Right. I find the whole statement. And what about the tens of millions that have been murdered in the last year in this on this globe? By right. You it's, know, we know what's going on. It's easy to dump on, and they would have said the same. So this is a convenient excuse. And the fact of the matter is, these people are ignorant of Jewish history. What about the fact that we lost one third of our people in Chomsky massacres? Right. Or we lost over ninety. We lost ninety percent of people in the time of Chorban Bayis Rishon. But if someone were to say that, I can't believe in God because of what happened in the time of the temple's destruction, they'd look bizarre and mm. weird. But this is just more convenient. These are ignoramuses. Yeah. Someone pointed out to me uh, this week, I have no idea, I have not researched this to, <laughs> to authenticate it, but someone said that the world Jewish population has now reached where we were before World War II, that it has now gotten back. You know, this week or this month or this year has now gotten back to where we were before World War II. I don't know if that's a fact or not, but... Uh, I don't know. What's interesting to know is that it is a fact that we lost one-third of our people in the Holocaust. Correct. Six million. Current histor- hist- historians believe it's a much higher figure, closer to seven million. But that's a fact. But from a religious perspective of the religious community, it's not reflective at all. At the time of the Holocaust, there were three Masifta high school, three high schools in America that were poorly attended. There was no Beishakov, no girls' school, right. no Kolel. The number of boys learning at yeshiva level in Israel was under 500. That means the heart and soul of Torah Judaism was in Lithuania, Romania, Hungary, Poland, White Russia. That was not decimated. That was, al- that was annihilated. Right. It was over 95%. Right. And you look around, the rejuvenation is just absolutely incredible. It is unbelievable. Um... Everybody is invited to Rabbi Hanoch Teller's book tour. He's going to be launching the uh, release of Heroic Children, Untold Stories of the Unconquerable this coming Tuesday at the Fox Family in Teaneck, New Jersey on Churchill Avenue. That starts Tuesday night at 7.30. The Daskal Family on Wednesday night in Woodmere starting at 8.30 p.m. on Longacre Avenue. This coming Shavasar Batamos is coming Sunday. He's at Rabbi Rudinsky Shul in Muncie starting uh, after the 145 Mincha Highland Park Congregation Oav Emeth on Sunday night right before the end of the fast starting at 7 p.m. on Monday, July the 13th out in Holliswood and Tuesday the 14th of July. Dr. Kripke will be the host in Far Rockaway, and that starts at 745. Information, you can go to Rabbi Hanuk Teller's website. Book is available everywhere at this point. I'm assuming all the major uh, places online have it as well. That's correct. Heroic Children, Untold Stories of the Unconquerable. Hanuk Teller, a book that uh, you said earlier in the, in the conversation, because we talk about stories and how, and you mentioned how in this case it was even more difficult because of selective recall that some of the uh, uh, or exaggerated recall or non-recall that some of the survivors had. Confused um, recall. Confused recall. You said that the research on this had to be really extensive. I'm not quite sure how you go about doing that to authenticate, you know, whether these uh, accounts that these survivors have given you are in fact accurate or not. I mean, what what method or what direction mm. do you go in to try to do that? Well, firstly, my own knowledge I have to apply. If I found right. something was wrong, and I have to make sure it's historically, geographically is correct, you know, you talk about the Holocaust. Sir Martin Gilbert mentioned this to me, that a historian knows one period of time, one place. To know the Holocaust, it's 15 different regimes. 
different countries. For example, uh, Germany took over Poland. Everything was in German. Holland, everything remained the same. In Holland, the fellow in the subway, in the tram, he had a, he had the same cap, same uniform, just with a Nazi emblem. The postman remained the same, just a Nazi emblem. It wasn't takeover. It, it was the local jurisdiction. Right. Everything is different. So what I did was I had to make, so, make sure that everything was accurate geographically, historically. Uh, there are no contradictions. Then there's a scholar, Aaron Breitbart, from the Wiesenthal Center who read over the entire manuscript. Uh, Dr. Michael Thaler, who's one of my children, he is a significant, I mean, he's a league of his own scholar. Uh, he's also a world-class doctor. I mean, Where does he live? He lives in San Francisco. Uh, he's originally from Canada. He's a world, um, originally from Poland, but he's a uh, world-class doctor, a scholar, uh, one of the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life. He read the entire manuscript. Uh, everyone had their comments. And then in the end, the senior editor in Yad Vashem, a colleague of mine, read through the whole thing, who made me crazy because uh, every single <laughs> word, every single spelling... He, uh, he challenged. Yeah, and, uh, some of those towns <laughs> in Europe are not easy huh, to spell. I put another dot on top of the Z, you know, put a needle. <laughs> that should do it. <laughs> a double cross through the L, you know. <laughs> where are you from originally? Pennsylvania, right? Incorrect. Off by a mile. Why did I think you were? Where? Vienna. What? Why did I think you grew up in this area? Am I totally wrong? I, I am from the area, but I was originally, I was born in Vienna. Okay, and then where from uh, this area? And then when I was a child, I moved to v- to Stanford, Connecticut. I oh, brought Connecticut. my parents with me. Connecticut, there you go. You moved <laughs> and brought your parents. I like that. And you end up moving to Israel eventually. Well, no, for most of my life, I'm in Israel. Right. I'm 27, and I'm in Israel already. Right. Uh, and you're very disappointed in people like me who are not living in Israel. Uh, we you, you walked in this morning. You were shocked to find me here. <laughs> you were like, this guy's not in Jerusalem yet? Am I right uh-huh. or wrong? Or you don't do the, you know, you're not one of these uh, great ambassadors for Aliyah. Uh, what can I say? If you're doing something productive, for, for that there's a hitter. Really? Thank you. That's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if what I do would be called productive, but for the purposes of this, car- of this conversation, <laughs> we'll assume it is. But you're, you're, you are shocked that more people don't leave this country for Israel. You no, the fact of the matter is I think it's, it's very positive. People are leaving. People you do. On. You see it. Right. I mean, people who want to become more substantial financially before they go, it's a pretty legitimate reason. Uh, otherwise, sometimes the ideology is going to conflict with reality. All right. And uh, those who are realistic about it are going to probably be better served. All right. Do all your children live in Israel? I have one son who lives in Woodmere, one son who just got married, lives in Chicago, and a son in two weeks who's moving temporarily to Buffalo to do care of work. Very nice. Buffalo, New York. I hear that's a growing Jewish community. Well, he's going to be working, I understand that as well, but he's going to be working in the university. Mm-hmm. Uh, does, that, does that affect you at all when children are not living in Israel or, you know, Bechira <laughs> you're, 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 you're going with the flow. Whatever, you know, whatever, whatever's best for them is best for them. You know, you can't fit a right. whole, you know, a circle into a square. Right. I have a lot of children and, uh, not everyone is made for the right, you know, for, mm-hmm. to be in Jerusalem. What a pleasure seeing you. Thank you very much. Rabbi Hanoch Teller, amazing author, lecturer, um, storyteller. His 28th book, or somewhere around the number 28, is Heroic Children, Untold Stories of the Unconquerable. It's an incredible account of World War II through Rabbi Teller's research of uh, nine uh, amazing Jewish heroes. And those are uh, nine uh, survivors of the Holocaust who, of course, were children at the time of the end of World War II. We highly recommend it, as have some of the most prominent and incredible 
uh, people out there in the world of uh, in the world of books, in the world of the Jewish world, the Jewish community. Uh, so check it out. Uh, the schedule will continue to announce on the air in terms of his appearances, um, which uh, include this coming Sunday, Shavasar Batamlu's up in Muncie and down in Highland Park. And you can get all the uh, information on his website. Just search Rabbi Hanoch Teller. A very interesting Thursday morning broadcast at JM in the AM.